Good morning, good morning, good morning. Cable Smith welcoming everybody into SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show presented by, here's a new one for you, Mossberg Firearms. A new presenting sponsor. Thrilled to have Mossberg on board. Been working with them a long time. Uh, just taking that relationship to the next level. Uh, man, love that tune by John Bonham, by the way. If you guys can't tell, I've been listening to a lot of John's catalog of late and uh, did reach out to him. He will be coming on the show sometime in the near future, probably like this spring, but really a great songwriter and just been playing his stuff on back-to-back road trips, literally like seven hours to South Texas for a deer hunt. And then this last week, a five and a half hour trip to Lubbock each way. And I just put John on Spotify and, and let it go. So highly recommend his tunes. Really a, uh, a nostalgic songwriter, to say the least. Uh, I'm Cable Smith. Again, thank you so much for being here. It is a pleasure, a treat, an honor to be talking all things outdoors with you. And we've got a great show for you today. So you know what to do by now. Pull up that stool a little closer to the old campfire. Pour yourself another cup of coffee out of that beat-up old Stanley Thermos, the one granddaddy passed down years ago, because we're ready to rock and roll and off the top. Our old buddy, Stephen Ranella of Meat Eater, will drop by. And Steve's someone who we've visited with many times over the years, going back to the Wild Within days. A lot of people don't even know that before Meat Eater existed, the Wild Within was a show that uh, Steve had airing on Travel Channel. That's where the wife and I first started watching this guy. Didn't even know about his, his writings at the time. It had to be nine, maybe even ten years ago at this point, but certainly have enjoyed the subsequent conversations from that first one uh, pertaining to the Wild Within to where we are today with uh, Meat Eater. I don't know that there's a, a bigger brand in the outdoor industry, to be frank. Uh, so we're going to talk a lot of things with Steve. We'll get his take on trophy hunting. What does that mean to him? Good, bad, indifferent, um, d- disease and parasites, he, you know, Steve's. Had most of them, the ones that you don't want from his time in the outdoors, and uh, we'll discuss that. The new book, uh, Brent Spanking new book he has out. I think people are going to want to check that out as well, and who knows what else. Might even find out what's on his Spotify playlist. So interesting stuff coming up with Steve. And then after that, going back to that round trip I just took to Lubbock, actually was crazy because I was in Seymour, which is only – Two hours from Lubbock, uh, was there hunting with some friends, uh, hogs and ducks, uh, annual trip we do with some guys from Missouri every year, and we meet up in Seymour to hunt with my buddy Greg Pavor, and so I'm only two hours from Lubbock at this point, and this is on Sunday, and, and I had a Sandhill Crane hunt booked in Lubbock on Monday, the next day, but I had to coach a soccer game in McKinney that Sunday afternoon, three and a half hours the wrong direction, so Sunday, get up. Drive back to McKinney to coach the Twinkies 
soccer game. And, of course, Frankie and Stella meant the world to them. And those little girls have their daddy wrapped around their finger. So I wasn't going to miss that game. Uh, I'd already missed one because of COVID and one another one from a previous hunt. So I was like, you know what? I just can't miss another game. So drive back to Dallas. Well, McKinney. Coached the game, which they won 12-11. to 11. Awesome game. Then I hop back in the truck and drive five and a half hours to Lubbock, where I check into the hotel. We get up at 4. I got there about, what, 10 o'clock that night? Get up at 4. We're limited out on cranes by, I don't know, 9.30. Finish cleaning the birds, and I'm on the road again by 10.30, 11, driving right back to McKinney. So uh, it, was a, it was a lot of miles on the old truck, but certainly to see the twins smile when – dad the old ball coach uh, showed up at the game and then uh, the cranes landing in my face those things combined made it all well worth it um, and we're going to talk cranes with our guide Wyatt Willis here at the bottom of the hour everything you want to know about sandhill crane hunting the species itself their migration their uh, feeding habits uh, what you need like the gear you need to successfully hunt them all that stuff Plus, Wyatt will give us his favorite crane recipe. They're referred to as the ribeye in the sky for a reason. I firmly believe they're the best-tasting bird on the planet, uh, certainly, that I've eaten anyway. Uh, so all of that coming at you today going to be a good one. Let's do this. Let's do a quick giveaway. I've got a Havilon bolt skinning and game cleaning knife uh, with, the, of course, the replaceable scalpel blades. And all you have to do to enter this week's Havilon giveaway is just email the word Havilon to Lone Star Outdoor Show at gmail.com. People win every week. So be sure to throw your hat in the ring. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, Stephen Ronella makes his return right here on SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show. Cable here reminding you to check out the Polestar Helion 2.0 Thermal Monocular if you haven't already. It's got all the great features that you've come to expect from Polestar. Internal recording, varied color palette, and it's an essential tool for scouting so that you don't blow animals out of your sets. I use it on all my whitetail hunts and, of course, predator and hog hunting as well. You can find the Helion 2.0 at Pulsar nv.com and get this you'll save 20 percent off when you use my promo code lone star underscore pl when you purchase any pulsar thermal or night vision monocular There's a little No Justice by request bringing us back on SCI's Lone Star Outdoors show, Horseshoe Lake, the name of that one. I'm Cable Smith. Thank you so much for being here today. Uh, we are all set to check in with one of our oldest friends. But before we jump into things with Stephen Ranella, this segment of the show brought to you by the Vortex Optics Ridgeview Carbon Fiber Tripod. For higher performance at higher heights and features to get low when you need it, 
Ridgeview Carbon is designed to set a new standard in stability. You can find it at VortexOptics.com. Vortex, the force of optics. And with that being said, let's bring him on right now, making his return to the program, renowned author, podcaster, and TV show host, Stephen Ranella. Been a minute, man, but uh, certainly glad to catch up. Yeah, thanks for having me on, man. I appreciate it. It's been a little while. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, thankfully, 2020 is in the rearview mirror. I'm not sure about 2021 yet, but uh, how's the new year treating you so far? Oh, man. Getting played out on the pandemic. Finally, I, I uh, just recently got out of quarantine. Like, I finally got COVID, but uh-huh. uh, it was very, very mild for me. Um, that was my fourth quarantine from exposures and whatnot. So I've spent, I don't know how many, like, I guess I've spent eight weeks in in varying states of quarantine. So, yeah. Yeah, we had the uh, the old Thanksgiving super spreader at our house, so. We all got it. Uh, my oh, mom, did you really? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It, anybody that, that drank these drinks my brother made after nine o'clock on Thanksgiving night, you know, we're all sitting around playing cards, drinking, and anybody that had those drinks got it. And anybody that didn't, didn't. So is that we, right? No kidding, yeah. man. You should, you should publish that in the medical journal, man. <laughs> oh, it's been, it's been crazy, but uh, the kids didn't get it. Um, just the wife and I, I don't know how they didn't get it. I think they're just like, I don't know, immune to it or, Dude, it's so it's so weird, man. It's so weird how it yeah. how it does how it does or you know, I had had some exposures prior where I thought I was like invincible. Yeah. Where I'd get a call, you know, and somebody be like, "Hey, you know, heads up, man. I just tested positive. I was over at your house. I flashed oh. beavers in my mudroom with a buddy of mine who was positive." Uh-huh. And somehow <laughs> didn't get it and That's i was like oh i must not be able to get it or i already had it and then lo and behold i got it <laughs> i got it later so yeah yeah I, like you my symptoms were mild i like had um, body aches and like was just tired for like 36 hours mm-hmm. and then uh, by day three i went back to the gym you know in the garage obviously because i was quarantined but uh and uh, had a headache the next day and that was it and so like done no more symptoms but yeah. Some, some people get lucky. And then I, you know, then you hear from people that don't, man, um, mm-hmm. a couple of people in my community where I grew up, my mom, I was just talking to my mom and just devastating, man. People get sick one day, the next day they're on a ventilator and the next day they're dead. Just yeah. unbelievable. Yeah, so, yeah. But yeah, I got, I got, I got lucky for sure. Well, you know, we've all had enough of this pandemic stuff, but I, I'm personally, I've had enough of Canada's covid policy you know i can go hunt cape buffalo in south africa which i'm planning on doing in february but i can't cross the canadian border to hunt black bear uh, when i mean you're up there in montana you, you might be hearing more than what we get filtered down to texas but when in the world do you foresee us being able to go back to canada and, and do the things we love to do i mean god bless those outfitters they're getting their asses handed to them oh yeah it's gotta be rough no i have, I have no idea on what their policies are man we spent a hell of a lot more time in, in Mexico than I do in Canada. Um, uh, I just missed a trip to Mexico because of being quarantined uh, and then going back in March and uh, trying to figure out what these new travel restrictions, you basically got to get tested. Yeah, it's all boring. You have to get, no, it's all right. You I, have I to get tested, in, have to get tested like 
in Mexico in order to fly back to the U.S. Uh, coming up here. So, but no, no, I have no idea what's up with Canada. I, I don't, I don't really spend any time there. Well, very, you're, you're lucky to have Alaska, I suppose. As yeah, you know. yeah, but you got to get that's got you can you can you know that's got testing requirements. Um, I was up there a few times this year, and uh, but you, you can still go. You just got to jump through you know certain hoops to do it. Yeah. Well, for that Africa trip, I have to have a, I think a negative test seventy two hours before departure. Not the not the rapid test, the the other one. Yep. So. Yep. But you know, you're you're playing uh, when you when you, you oh yeah you have to have a PCR because the rapid yeah. man I tell you I've the rapid test dude there's uh, I kind of am a little bit leery of the rapid test after the amount of testing we go through here at, uh-huh. at, at work you know. Um, I, I think it's you get a much better picture of what's going on. It seems to me, as not a med, I'm not a healthcare expert or professional, but <laughs> seems to me that uh, I, I feel that you 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 come away feeling like you have a much more accurate picture of what's going on when you do the uh, PCR test. Yeah. Oh, my wife had a, a false negative uh, with the rapid, and then three days later, you know, her results came back, and of course, she was positive. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. But she just got the vaccine, and dude, it. She said it feels like she has COVID again. Like it's knocked her on her ass for thirty six mm. hours. Mm. So, yeah, yeah. It makes me leave that. She in healthcare or what? She is. Yeah, she's a nurse practitioner. Yeah. yeah. So, um, well, uh, shifting gears here, you've got a new piece of literature out. The uh. The Meat Eater Guide to Wilderness Skills and Survival. Well, give us a little overview, uh, you know, a little history of this book and its origins. Yeah, we started working on the book quite a long time ago, and it was funny because it was one of those uh, fortuitous things where uh, we started working on it way before the pandemic, but then interest in the outdoors and camping really surged. And so I think that we got, you know, I hate to point out like a positive of the pandemic, but uh, by the time the book came out, um, seemed to be there was quite an appetite for this sort of information. Um, we worked on a long time. I say we, like me and uh, various guys I work with mm-hmm. at Meat Eater. And, uh, it, you know, it, its genesis comes from a couple of things. One is the, the, the way in which the wilderness skills and survival worlds have been, you know, hijacked in the last decade or so by you know reality tv survival depictions where um you know everything kind of it has this like fantasy land feel to it you know like i mean like bear grills like eating a sheep's eyeball stuff like that yeah it's like you're gonna get stranded out somewhere (laughs) with nothing but a knife you know go spend the night uh, in a hotel it's just not like accurate to how uh situations play out and also this pervasive sense that the outdoors is you know like this dangerous thing that you need to get away from and you're going to get mauled by an animal anytime you go anywhere. And so a little bit of just like setting the record straight, but also a way of giving like real practical information, explaining how people um, get in trouble in the woods. Right. And what are the, what is the equipment, the mindset and the tools that you need to avoid trouble? Uh, and what's more, a lot of things, you know, in the genre of survival books and wilderness skills books, a lot of it's pretty antiquated. And there's been so many technological advancements that can be used by people. And I don't mean to diminish the experience of being outdoors, mm-hmm. 
but advancements that can be used by people um, to protect themselves and to be prepared to avoid trouble. Like if you play your cards right and do the things you need to do before you go somewhere, it becomes virtually impossible to get lost. Um, and so it's like understanding how this stuff works, how to use it. And we also approach it all with the mindset that we go into the outdoors in order to accomplish something. Okay. Like I did it when I was a journalist, I do it as a hunter. Um, you know, I, I do it as someone who, who goes out and makes outdoor television. Um, and I hang out with a lot of people like ice climbers, rafting guides, fishermen, right? People that go outdoors to get something done. They want to do something there. So how to be effective in getting done what you want to get done. So for me personally, like worked as a journalist for a long time and, and, and worked in very remote areas, working in outdoor television, spent a hell of a lot of time in remote areas, like where you're trying to like do something, you know? and hunters and fishermen get this as well. Uh, you're not out doing like survival stuff for the fun of doing survival stuff, right? You're out right. to get something done. Um, outdoor professionals like biologists and things know this well too. So the book's very focused on kind of that practical, pragmatic information for people who have a purpose outside and want to be able to like execute on their goals well and how to prepare for situations that will allow you to go out and get done what it is you meant to go get done right whether it's like finding a a, a, a doll ram or um traveling in a remote area that you're not very familiar with kind of the do's and don'ts of how to be somewhere so those are some of the things i think that make the book very different than what you might find if you go explore this genre from uh past decades yeah, I, I think it, it's become very extreme. Like, um, like going back to Bear Grylls, that kind of, it 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 just kind of glorifies being put in a horrible situation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It's not like it's not that useful information, you know. Yeah. Obviously, one of my favorite scenes from that is uh, I think the only episode I ever watched. He grabbed a big pile of elephant, <laughs> squeezed it into his mouth in order to get water, and. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I realized that there's not a lot of value to be found here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, was there one thing in the book that you think is fundamentally so simple, but yet so many hunters or outdoorsmen are either ignorant of it or they are doing it incorrectly? Yeah. I think issues around water. Uh -huh. um, there's a lot of misinformation out there about water, you know, sourcing water what the risks are with water, mm -hmm. um, how to avoid those risks, best practices. I'm talking about just like treating and purifying water in the outdoors, you know? Sure. Um, a lot of misinformation out about that. A, a real misfocus on risk. Um, you should spend a lot more time thinking about microscopic trouble yeah. than you do macroscopic trouble. Many people fix a, you know, guys like me love to have arguments about, oh, pistols or pepper spray for grizzlies and, you know, and all this garbage, but not garbage. I mean, we cover that stuff in the book and it's something that's, it's fun to talk about. It's fun to think about, right? You can right. fantasize about what you're going to do when that big bear comes down on you. And I've been like charged by bears, man. And it's like unnerving, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. but 
microscopic parasites and stuff, man. It's like, pay attention there. Like that's where your risk is, you know? Uh, Lyme disease is a lot more relevant to most people's lives than getting scratched up by a mountain lion. So focusing people's attention where it needs to be focused. Yeah. I think it's pretty important. And then finally, just like, like I said, uh, just a a third thing and like places where people mess up is just like understanding how to use technology, um, how to use apps, how to use Garmin inReach effectively, like just, just ways to have in your back pocket where you have a, um, you know, where you always have a good plan and, and, and help is very close by if you take the right steps ahead of time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The, the inReach is, is great technology because, you know, gone are the days of having to pack a, a satellite phone in, um, text your wife, Hey, I'm not dead. You know, I'll, I'll text you the same thing tomorrow. Yep, yeah. Basically. Uh, but I still travel to all kinds of people that have one and they haven't set it up properly or they don't realize how it works with, with people sending you incoming messages. Mm. <laughs> so yeah, people have them. It's a great tool, but again, man, it's stuff you got to like, if you're going to use it, you got to understand it and you got to take some steps beforehand. You know, you don't buy it off the shelf and throw it in your bag and have never tried it out or used it or understand yeah. what to do. So yeah. I think those are probably three of the biggest areas where I see, and I spend a lot of time with people, man, different people, probably some of the areas where I see the biggest, um, biggest areas for improvement for people. Sure. Now you've had Lyme disease. You've had, um, trichinosis, which you got from uh, black bear eating mm-hmm. undercooked black bear meat. Have you had Giardia? which would be the one. Oh yeah. Yeah. I've had a couple of waterborne pathogens. What was the worst? Out of all those things, Lyme disease by far, because it's so unnerving, man. Um, yeah. And it's so mysterious, you know, trichinosis just plays itself out. It's really like, from my perspective, it's just not that big of a deal. You're kind of a dead end, you know, mm-hmm. for it. Right. It's just a, it just, you get worms, yeah. but um, they do their deal and, it's over. Uh, Lyme can have just major ramifications for people, man. It's very mysterious. It attacks your nervous system. Um, I got sick in June and was sick till November. Hmm. Uh, my boy had it. He had like facial paralysis. I mean, it was awful, horrible. Uh, Giardia is only a problem until you figure out you got it. And then it's almost like stunning how quickly medication takes care of it. Um, right. When I had trichinosis, I wound up taking a $1,200 deworming course. It got better at the same time that my buddies that never took anything got. It was a total waste of money. Huh. What was funny then, too, is the pharmacist said, you know, I sell this. He goes, I don't, I don't understand how you deal with the dosages, but I sell the same thing for dogs, and that's seven bucks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it sounds about right. Uh... And so uh yeah lime is 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 terrible it's terrible um a man um you know you just hear some real horror stories and my, my own experiences were that were terrible but i'll tell you jardy ruin will ruin a trip in a hurry and and trichnosis is weird because it hits you a month later huh. and a lot yeah. of times I, I imagine a lot of people get sick and then never put it together i yeah. wouldn't have put it together had i not had three of my buddies all get the exact same symptoms. And the last time we had seen each other was when we were together hunting bears. Yeah. If not, I would have never put it together. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It's a month later, dude. I, yeah. Also, you just feel like you got like a kind of weird kind of 
just feel Blue. like worms are crawling around inside of you yeah like but we're texting <laughs> each other back and forth like hey man are you getting like some weird like muscle pains and stuff you know and i'm like yeah matter of fact i am huh. but if not i would never I, I bet you a lot of people get it they don't know they got it they, mm. they don't they, they don't make the connection right yeah the long-term side effect ones like lime uh, i've never been blessed knock on wood to have any of these uh my mom, we used to go do these mission trips in the Amazon rainforest and she's a dentist. And so she would do, you know, free dental care. Oh yeah. And I would go off, you know, peacock bass fishing or catching caiman alligators with some native. I basically was like, here's a soccer ball. Take me to do something cool, you know? Yep. And they'd be like, um, so she got dinghy fever and that oh, yeah. had a, like residual side effects for like almost a year. Kind of, mm. she wasn't herself. Uh, so yeah, yeah. that's long long-term ones yeah malaria is another just scary one man like those, those are the ones the ones like the mysterious ones that come back or never go away like that yeah, yeah. And, and that that's what i'm getting at where um there's a lot of just good information out there that you should have um especially when traveling in areas that you're not familiar with you know um yeah. there's a lot you learn about your own spot but um, I remember, you know, we covered the book, but, you know, I remember very well my first experience and I've had a couple of them now, my first experience with chiggers and the amount of misinformation that's out there in people's minds, you know? Um, so it's good to have like something and, and we, all that stuff in the book, like we vetted very carefully with medical professionals and emergency room doctors and stuff. And, and, uh, just the best practices information is very valuable. I did get chiggers just horribly bad on on one of those brazil trips and like was putting like nail polish on my ball sack i mean mm -hmm. yeah i don't know if that actually works or not but that's what they told us to do and oh yeah there is a lot of <laughs> taking baths and gasoline <laughs> there's Jeez. a lot yeah. i've heard it all dude <laughs> i've heard it all and i've been in a and, and I hate to admit that I've done a couple of them, but, uh, <laughs> well, yeah. when you're in the depths of hell with chiggers on your testicles, I mean, God, you oh. try anything, uh, especially when you're stuck in a third world country trying to deal yep. with it. Um, let's do this. Let's take a quick break. I want to come back, talk a little bit about, uh, introducing kids into hunting. Uh, I think something we've both been able, fortunate to, to do, uh, this, uh, this past fall. So sound good. Yep. Perfect. That segment brought to you by the Stealth Cam Fusion. It's what I'm running on both of my whitetail hunting properties. And currently, it's keeping me up to date on when those feral hogs are hitting the feeder. It gives me an advantage to pattern them so that when I do make it out to the lease, I'm going to pile up that bacon. It's the Stealth Cam Fusion. You can find it at stealthcam.com. We'll be right back with more from the meat eaters, Stephen Ranella, on SCI's Home Star Outdoor Show. My worst. You can't tell if I'm a blessing or a curse But he always shows up when the chips are down Texas Premium Power Sports is one of the largest pre-owned dealers in Texas. They specialize in sales of pre-owned ATVs and UTVs, many of which come fully accessorized. They also have a full service and repair center for most major brands and offer financing with a 500 credit score or better. They'll even finance parts and accessories such as high racks, roofs, and wheel and tire combos. Visit TexasPremiumPowerSports.com or check them out on Instagram at Texas underscore premium underscore power sports. That's TexasPremiumPowerSports.com. 
With city life seemingly getting crazier by the minute, the thought of moving out to the country is looking more appealing than ever. And Foster Farm and Ranch has been recognized as one of the nation's top ranch brokerages the past two years. They have listings in 22 counties and counting and are truly a statewide entity. Foster represents buyers and sellers from all walks of life. Farmers, ranchers, hunters, doctors, lawyers, investors, and possibly you. You can find them on Facebook, Foster Farm and Ranch, or Instagram, at Foster Ranch Sales. Of course, fosterfarmandranch.com, the website, or call chat at 830-776-3605. Baby, I'm just a bad guy. I don't know why. The joke curse the day we met. I'll be your downfall. Till it's last call I'm not coming home to you And I'll break everything you love And make you cry Cause baby I'm just a bad guy There's a little Casey Donahue bad guy Bringing us back on SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show Presented by Mossberg Firearms Cable Smith here with you uh, We're still visiting with Stephen Ranella From Meat Eater but before we jump back into that conversation, this segment of the show is brought to you by First Light in their new Dirt Bag Duffel lineup with three sizes. Uh, they're perfect for everything from airline travel to throwing in the back of the pickup to the smallest of the three uh, serving as my new duck blind bag. So uh, they are rugged, waterproof, the zippers. I mean, you, you can't beat these things up. Oh, they've also got straps, too, so you can wear them as a backpack if you so choose. I certainly like to do that, especially walking around the airport. Uh, it's the Dirtbag Duffel. You can find all three sizes at firstlight.com. First Light, go further, stay longer. Now, let's go ahead and pick it back up with Steve here, who was nice enough to stick around through the break. Steve, your social media accounts are littered with images of you trapping, whether that's a beaver Pine Martins, so on and so forth. Uh, muskrats, I know you do a lot of that as well. But the reality is, at no point in human history has the time-honored tradition been so scrutinized and vilified. You know, we've seen anti-trapping bans statewide in California. 2019, they banned it completely. Uh, Oregon is is trying to go that direction, it seems, with some of their recent legislation. And even places like Montana have tried to introduce anti-trapping bans. How important is it to you to make sure that Meat Eater uses its available resources to try to prevent future trapping legislation from being passed into law? Yeah, um, I, you know, I, I believe in duking it out in defense of, uh, of those rights for a couple of reasons. You know, I, I like I trap a little bit recreationally, you know, so I want to expose my kids to it and, and, and those skill sets and fur handling and, you know, everything that goes with it. Uh, we like to, to have stuff made from our own furs and display our own furs. Um, but more importantly, man, I, I do believe in the death by a thousand cuts approach. And I think that the reason people go after that, that animal rights groups go after hound hunting and, and go after trapping and things is it just, I think they take the easy wins, right? The, the things with the smallest number of participants the lowest voice and, and they take what they can get. Um, you always imagine like the, the, the private conversations of the people that are behind these. I don't think that their goal is just to take care of this one thing. I think it's, it's a broader push to curtail hunting and fishing rights where people have a real um, uh, 
dislike, distaste for those activities, would like to see them go away. And I would like to see them not go away. Um, and so we're sort of in a, you know, we're, we're in a sort of chess match. And, and oftentimes it comes down to, um, comes down to a PR battle. And it also comes down to just, you know, initiatives and referendums that gradually whittle away at hunting and fishing and trapping rights. So I generally want to try to, you know, personally meet all of those head on and, 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 and do what it takes to defeat every one of them because I do view it as being just part of a longer game. Um, and I don't think you can turn your attention away from any of these smaller attacks thinking that it won't someday, you know, make them and, and not make the mistake of thinking that you're going to somehow avoid it or that your own personal activities are exempt from being inhibited by future legal actions. So I, I think it's important to defend all traditional practices. I feel like Texans uh, sometimes ex exhibit that same, that mindset that you just alluded to and that we feel like, Oh, that, that stuff that happens in California would never happen here. And mm -hmm. so we just kind of shrug it off and we're certainly a proud lot, you know, uh, down here, but I feel like that's, that's foolhardy because like you just said, it, if they can do it there, it, it will trickle this way. And eventually they'll be trying to cram it down your throats here too. Yeah. It's funny, man. I got buddies that, um, people I'm very close with that just don't see it that way. You know, they're like, they just, they feel like they're, uh, invulnerable because of where they live. But, uh, you know, even a couple of years ago here in Montana, where you have just like very high hunter participation rates. Um, you know, we had a thing, a, a referendum that came out that, uh, would, you know, ban trapping on public lands. It was defeated soundly, mm -hmm. but it happened. And then you get into some weird things where um, we also had a thing to ban canned hunts. And, and I was, that was years ago and I was all for that. And the banning of canned hunts actually came from the hunting community. Mm. And that passed overwhelmingly. And I feel like you might create some confusion in people of understanding what sorts of things, when I say like traditional practices, Defending traditional practices doesn't mean defending any and all practice, right? Well, to me, that I, the term canned hunts is that's a whole nother rabbit hole. But like I, sure you know, having hunted on a thirty thousand acre game preserve that's designed to keep poachers out, as opposed to really the animals in in South Africa, I, I don't know if I can call that a canned hunt. That's you not what that's not what was going on. But I do understand what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's so much. There's so much gray area there. Um, I, I, I don't know. It's a weird thing, <laughs> especially coming from Texas culture, you know, where we, we have high fences. You've been here many times. You've seen them. But, you know, what's a 10,000-acre what's a ranch or compared to a 200-acre kick-and-shoot? Now, one of those, I think, is completely unethical and not something I'd have any interest in. Mm -hmm. uh, but the other... Well, I, I think that by looking at, like, you know, I think there's value in looking at traditional use where I remember some years ago, some guy in Texas was going to do a thing where you would shoot deer as part of a video game. God. Like remote deer shooting. Yeah. Right. You buy a deer off this guy and then shoot it with a, a remotely, uh, a remote controlled firearm. I just don't view that as a traditional use. No. So it's like, I don't feel that that's my fight defending right. that. 
Right. You know what I mean? And it didn't. Mm-hmm. I think that somehow I can't remember how it was, but it was made not plausible. It was made implausible by some rule. But yeah. uh, I just like when I say like defending hunting and fishing and trapping, like I just want to be uh, my, my my point being that I don't think that um, that covers every possible use and abuse of wildlife that might come up in the future. It's more covering um rights that we currently enjoy right right well there's things that i think are just totally abhorrent that are legal like um people like to blow up feral hogs with tannerite mm-hmm. uh, you know and you see those videos and and personally what you do if it's legal and on your own time you know I, it's not for me i really don't want to see it but my problem is when you just put it out there on social media and then now i host a hunting talk show for a living and it reflects poorly on me and you and the rest of the hunting community. Sure. Yeah. It's a, it, <laughs> you can make a, you can, you can pretty much make a living trying to sort this stuff out. So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I think when it comes back to the trapping thing though, like uh, humanity is just getting so soft at the end of the day. And uh, you know, I don't think that's a good thing that people don't want to get their hands dirty and, and experience those traditional things that, I mean, that's what moved westward expansion. It wasn't the gold rush. It was trapping in this country. Mm-hmm. Kids want to play video games and instead of getting outdoors. And that's sad, but it, it does bring me to the next topic here, and that's uh, kids. Uh, my son's eight. I don't. How old is your son? Um, my oldest boy is 10. Okay. And what is Montana's law on when they can actually hunt themselves? They can hunt with a mentor once they turn 10. Okay. Then so they can would... do that. They can do mentored hunting for two years. Mm-hmm. So I think you could like, it, you know, you can do mentored hunting for two years. So if your kid starts out doing mentored hunting at 10, it lands them at that they uh, need to do hunters at, you know, when they're 12. And once they're 12, they can begin applying for limited entry permits and all that. And then they can hunt on their own. Uh-huh. Um, so it's a little bit better. When I, when I was a kid, you had to be, you could, in Michigan growing up, you could bow hunt at 12 and you couldn't firearm hunt till 14, wow. which my dad paid little attention to that rule. But, uh, <laughs> um, that, that's what it is here, which is, you know, it's great, man. It's great. I mean, so, you know, it's earlier in some States later in some States, but, uh, and, and it depends on the kid, obviously depends on the comfort level of the parent, but we had some great hunting, uh, experiences this year, just, hunting with my kid and when we'd be out i'd be pretty focused on him not even not trying to hunt as myself as well you know just focused on what he's got going on yeah um and he had a he had a great year man he um he's very excited it was it was a great immersion into being the one actually out doing it you know we hunted uh he got a i took him up to alaska and he got a his first caribou um then he got uh a whitetail doe out of a basically out of a friend's yard <laughs> he got a he got a mule deer buck this year and he got a you know ducks and geese he had a, he had a great time man he's fired up so what caliber is he comfortable shooting there he shot all that with a six five creedmoor okay um, he was today asking me about hunting something and i told him he'd have to use a heavier rifle and he was kind of like oh never mind <laughs> <He's a> little- <laughs> 
So, he's pretty tough though on the recoil you know um, yeah well i have a six five it, it, it certainly it does kick a little bit there's no doubt about that for for someone you know for a young boy uh my son is uh he just turned eight so in texas we don't have those we don't have any law I, and sometimes i see a three-year-old in a blind and then there's you know the dad there's a picture of the dad and with the, the kid and the deer i'm just like come on you know like <laughs> what now my son came to me and said, dad, I want to shoot a deer next year. He was seven. Whitetail season had just wrapped up. And I said, all right, Henry, you're going to have to practice. Well, silver lining from quarantine was that we got a lot of practice. We went to the deer lease a lot. We didn't have anything else going on. Uh, and so I gave him, uh, my 22, 250, not a lot of recoil. And, uh, yeah, he shot his first whitetail, but he came to me and said he was ready for that. And then I kind of explored it with him and, and, you know, he was ready for it. Um, but like you said, it's, it's kid to kid and I never wanted to push that on him. Super proud of him. Uh, just like you were, are with your son. It's interesting to explore those different regulations state by state of, of when basically politicians say, this is when you, your kid can start hunting. Yeah, exactly. One other thing I wanted to ask you about the, the term trophy hunter, what does that, what does that mean to you? And is it something that we should distance from because it's meaning or at least the, you know, the traditional meaning of trophy hunter in, in Teddy Roosevelt's day and it held 25 years ago, wasn't really a negative thing, but the public perception of that term now really only has negative connotations associated with it. Yeah. I don't know what, you know, I don't know what to do about it. I mean, there's, there's different definitions. There's like whatever's in my head and there's what's in somebody else's head. Uh, yeah. I, because it's such a loaded term and it's so open to interpretation i don't find myself using it i never hear anybody use it in a way that's not meant to be negative right right but would you say it's probably the the anti-hunting community that uses it more often we probably don't call ourselves that but i would say if i had to think about it like analyze my own thoughts and my own perception of of what who i am and what i do i'd say i'm a trophy hunter and to me the trophy is is not it's it's the meat first of all secondly it's a nice rack uh, those are things we collect as as hunters we don't just discard them nor should we uh and and it means a lot of times taking the oldest most mature male of a species which you know biologically is the right thing to do um so i guess i would say and and don't we all like big bass and, and big bucks as opposed to little ones yeah, yeah but you're you're allowed to you're allowed to like big fish yeah. Um, no, <laughs> that doesn't upset anyone. Uh, yeah. if you only pursue the biggest fish, that's fine. That's like, great. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know what I feel about, it. you know, I, I keep all kinds of hides and skulls and stuff, man. It's my, I, I love that stuff. Um, I don't like, I don't throw it out when I get an animal. I like to keep it. Um, I don't, I don't really have any suggestions for anyone on what they ought to do, <laughs> what they ought to do about that word. <laughs> if I met a guy who just loved that term and that was, that was his, you know, cross to die on and knock yourself out. Back to Texas. You, you came down here during whitetail season um, and hunted a, a private ranch. And mm -hmm. I know you've spent a fair amount of time, certainly in, in Mexico. And, and I believe, I know you've turkey hunted in Texas on probably on, on private property. Um, yeah, I've hunted uh, turkeys, uh, whitetails. Well, one time on a very small place, one time on a big place, and mm -hmm. a lot of pigs, quail, 
in Texas, Neil guy in Texas. Yeah. Um, trying to think what else. Uh, out in West Texas, our dad. Yeah. Well, yeah, so it's but, quite, a bit, quite a bit over the years. We so, probably filmed. I think we almost probably filmed more outside of Alaska. I think we probably filmed more. Uh, uh, Texas is probably our number two or number three state for how much we've, uh, how many episodes we've done out of Texas over the years. Was this the was this the first time you actually hunted a white-tailed buck on a big ranch like that? Yeah. Well, so what was that experience like for you? Well, it was kind of like you know, we're in a place that doesn't really get hunted. It was, was kind of unbelievable, man. Because you know, I, I don't hunt whitetails a whole ton now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I grew up hunting whitetails, man, and it was like, you know. It, you didn't see bucks that were, I mean, now and then they'd turn up, but they just weren't there. Like you didn't see bucks that had grown their second or third set of antlers, man. You just, you just didn't, you know, at that time. Mm-hmm. Right. It was ridiculous. Ridiculous. It's brown, bad. it's down. Ridiculously bad hunting. We didn't know that at the time. We thought it was just hunting, but now I'm like, Oh my man, it's just horrible hunting. <laughs> hard hard hunt very competitive no box around you know so to kind of like go to a place where you're just like like to go hang out somewhere where you're seeing like the kind of bucks that you'd never in a million years would have witnessed growing up was it's fun it's cool to see it you guys did some rattling yeah yeah which is like real effective i think because uh, you know there's different theories about why it's so effective but one thing is the the, the ratio of bucks to does is much closer to probably what you would see in a completely unhunted population. You know, mm-hmm. they're born equitable, right? Like deer born on a virtually a one-to-one ratio, male to female. Um, females live longer for a handful of reasons. Um, but I think it's just very competitive for the bucks in there. You know, there's a lot of bucks. Yeah. Um, they're not all dead. It's, it's a, uh, very competitive atmosphere for those deer and so and i don't know i'm sure there's probably other you know other explanations that people throw out there but rattling very effective they're not like they're not like uh skeptical you know it seems like they hear that rattling and they think that that the only explanation the only plausible explanation is that that's two deer it doesn't seem to be on their mind that it could be a dude (laughs) so that helps you know there's no they haven't been burned in the past by running into that noise and then, you know, getting shot at or spooked off. Right. So, uh, yeah, it was, it was, it was very effective. It was kind of like how you sort of wish calling game worked. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, you know, a biologist told me quite recently that, um, having a lower buck to doe ratio, it's obviously good for a lot of reasons, but one of them, he said the mortality rate, on the bucks goes down because there's not as many does, meaning there's not as many fights, mm. which um, was something I had not heard from like a scientific standpoint before. I found that very interesting. You oh, know. that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah, you find, you know, it's hard to know the truth about things because you find theories and competing theories. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, no, it was a blast, man. And we were down this, we were down there hunting Neil guy the, almost a year before we were down and, yeah. we just stop here and there and rattle and it was like bucks wanted to climb into the truck you know and we thought like man we i i thought i'd like to come back down and <laughs> check it out for whitetail and it was a blast we filmed it it'll be it'll be uh you'll be able to watch it next year on netflix 
Awesome. Awesome. Well, uh, a couple just random questions here. Do you take your coffee black? Because uh, my grandfather told me, I guess it was probably, you know, he served in World War II. And I, I always just had this vision of, well, they probably didn't have cream and sugar, you know, when you're serving in, in a war. It was probably a luxury. So we always drank it black. And he told me that, you know, if I want to be a man, I had to drink it black. And I, you know, it was disgusting as a 13 year old kid, but I guess I finally got used to it. No, I loaded up. I loaded up with cream, man. Um, you do? <laughs> yeah. My dad fought World War II and they gave him cigarettes and his rations, but yeah. I, 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 he never mentioned getting Cremora and his rations. <laughs> but now they do. Like now, if you open up, uh, you know, if you open up MREs and stuff, you'll find uh, cream and sugar packets. But no, I loaded up and it's kind of a joke with the guys I work with, man. Cause I'm like, if you want to stick around and keep your job, don't uh, don't let us run out of that. <laughs> <laughs> oh. I, thought, I recognize it as a tremendous weakness, though, and I've thought a lot about switching, but I just like it so much better. One of the dudes I work with always drag it black, and I recently turned him on to put in half and half, and he's like, yeah, I can see the appeal, man. It like really changes the viscosity. You know? <laughs> yeah. So do you put powdered milk, I guess, in, like, do you take that into the backcountry? No, when we're backpacking, I just bring, um, looks like a little bag of Coke. I just bring like a little baggie of, uh, you know, like that fake chemical creamer, whatever the hell it is, Creamora. Right. I don't, you know, you look at it's like, it's got like a mile long ingredients list. I have no idea what's in there, but I, um, yeah, I'll carry some of that. This year I had this stuff too. It was like this coffee that was kind of mixed with something like a coconut mm. oil, which I thought was pretty damn good. Um, mm. But yeah, it, it's a, it's a, it's an indulgence, but you know, make do. If I ran yeah. out of it, it wouldn't kill me. But if, I mean, if you're asking, that's how I like it. You, you know, it's funny. My grandfather going back to the cigarette rations, he, he pretty much smoked until he died at like 85. So I don't, I don't think it killed him, but man, he, he, I imagine he got hooked on it in, the, in that Kill. word with those Kill, rations. Kills, kills a lot of people, man. Yeah. Yeah. Last question. What, what, music is like maybe you don't listen to music maybe you only listen to oh, i listen to tons of music man okay but you're not gonna be satisfied with my answer because it's just way too broad you know all right well give me like to top three things that's on your playlist right now right now i've been listening to a fair bit of a outfit called strand of oaks uh -huh. um like those guys a lot i i just like so much stuff man um everything from Waylon Jennings, their Radiohead, you know, uh, I just <laughs> I like too much. I don't even understand what it is that I like. I just know I I, just, I know it when I like it, but it's very hard for me to describe. But yeah, Radiohead. I listen to a lot of music, man. My kids love music. None of us play music. I can't play anything. Can't sing. Can't play. <laughs> but just really, really like. I like music. I like hanging out with musicians. Um, yeah, I saw you had Whiskey Myers on recently. They're good. Yeah, old yeah. East just, Texas outfit. Yep, yep. Yeah. Um, just I like tons of stuff, man. I'm sure that you could probably put it all together in a thing, but it just it's 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 just a, a real wide array of 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 things, and I find a lot of discoveries in so many different genres. Um, that it just it, it's I I can't I I've tried, but I can't put a I can't put any brackets around it. Mm-hmm country it's a uh a lot of country a lot of rock i'm sure other things that fall outside of even those broad categories well i don't i don't know that i can say today's rock is what it was when you or i were kids or our parents were kids 
I think it's uh, you know, the nineties, just going back to Radiohead, Stone Temple Pilots, Pearl Jam, all that stuff is like right in my wheelhouse. Yeah, no, I, yeah, man, it's just too, there's just so much stuff out there, man. I spent a lot of time, you know, I, I spent a lot of time exploring Spotify and it's just like, it's just it's a rabbit hole. Yeah. It's endless, man. And it kind of makes you like feel good about society, right? Cause there's so much on, it's like so much music. It's that you can't find, it's like, you, you know, yeah. it's not out there and that industry's changed so much you know growing up you know everybody had like you know you had like three fm rock stations right everybody listened to the same music but now you have all these phenomenal musicians that you, that you can't find out about you know you got to like luck into it um it makes listening to it fun but yeah i love music um but man i'm, I'm like which is funny because i'm the zero talent zero talent in that world Oh, yeah. I couldn't even make up a jingle, you know. I mean, like zero <laughs> talent, but I have such deep respect for it. Oh, yeah, we're in the same uh, boat there. And I'm, I'm about to, I'm almost forty. I know you're a few years older than me, but I reckon you probably had. I mean, I had a cassette tape, and when my favorite song would come on the radio, I'd hit record and sure, make myself dude. a mixtape. Yeah. And now you can no. just go to Spotify and listen to it whatever you want whenever you want uh it's, yeah it's, it's oh yeah making like getting like a like taking making like tapes off tapes and stuff <laughs> like give it to your girlfriend like hey baby, it's hilarious and i still even had, i recently had a laptop that still had all this music from putting cds into itunes you know and i just had to like have this reckoning one day where i'm like <laughs> there is no like this is not necessary this is completely unnecessary to have this yeah oh I still, I still have a, a case, a CD case that, uh, you know, my truck still has a, a CD player for some reason. And, uh, sometimes those, those get put in there. So, yeah, no, no, I have, a, I have a 2018 F-150 with a CD player. It is never, I, I didn't, <laughs> honestly, I just, the other day realized it was there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so. I was like, Oh wow, that must be a CD hole. And it was, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, Hey, what's, uh, what is next for, for you what's the next trip or what's uh what's coming up for the mediator crew as far as big things mm, man like i said i just missed a trip down to sonora for coos deer because i was mm. covid positive uh next place we're going besides messing around with my kids locally you know um we're going out to maryland and virginia and then headed down to arkansas uh be hunting squirrels and running some raccoons down in arkansas filming for the show Nice. And then uh, out in Maryland and Virginia doing uh, beavers and then uh, doing cottontail rabbits. Then I drew a new tag in New Mexico for a female Ibex. And I Ooh. drew an Oryx tag over the summer, man. So in June, I went out and hunted Oryx. I saw that. And then uh, I had, and then the, kind of like doubled up on sweet New Mexico tags and drew a female Ibex tag. So oh, in the Florida mountains so i get to go down and hunt a female ibex and i'm hoping i don't even run into a big ram i don't even want to see it (laughs) (laughs) i just just rather have that be a later experience i don't even want to see one dude but i'm guessing i'll probably run into one and and be able to not take a crack at it but uh, that'll be fun man yeah a college buddy of mine drew a ibex ram tag in new mexico and shot a monster about a month ago oh yeah oh that's it yeah they're cool, but I can still do it. You know, I can still put in, right? Like, uh, yeah. so. Well, Steve, thanks for the time today. Y'all check it out. The new book, The Meat Eater's Guide to Wilderness Skills and Survival. 
Uh, look forward to continuing to follow along in the adventure and you know watching your kiddos becoming more incorporated into what you're doing. It's like that next phase of life is as dads and hunters. Yeah, it's fun and frustrating all at the same time. Absolutely. All right, man. Well, hey, thanks again. Thank you. So there he goes, taking a break from quarantine to join us here today. Stephen Ranella, uh, that segment of the show brought to you by Rustic Reminders Taxidermy. The next time you take that wall-worthy trophy, and remember, a trophy is in the eye of the beholder, whatever that may be, you know where to go. Rustic Reminders Taxidermy, they've got locations in San Antonio as well as in Marion, Texas, just outside of New Braunfels. You can find them at gr8mounts.com. Coming up next, we'll head out to the Texas Plains, do a little sandhill crane hunting with Wyatt Willis, who actually was my guide on Monday for an epic crane beatdown that uh, I will not soon forget. That's coming up next on SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show. Guys, Cable here for Coon Stopper. If you're tired of losing corn or protein to those pesky raccoons, well, here's your solution. If you're running a traditional feeder that has, you know, those long legs that coons like to climb up and rob you blind, well, you just attach the Coon Stopper to each leg. It's so easy. I just put one on a 300-pound all-seasons feeder, and <laughs> the results speak for themselves. Coons don't like it. They basically attempt one time, realize that it hurts, and they're done. Throw in the towel, just like that. It's the Coon Stopper, and you can find it at alamooutdoorworld.com. Hi, Brett Jepson here with Three Curl Lease Connection. I'd like to invite you to come enjoy some of Texas' best dove hunting just minutes outside of Dallas. We have many private dove leases available for this upcoming season, including milo, wheat, sunflower, and cornfields. Leases come in different sizes and prices, so we can fit anyone's budget. We have the lease that's perfect for you and your group. We don't overcrowd multiple groups into one property, and you'll have the first pick at renewing your lease for years to come. Please visit us at 3curl.com and click on leases for your property listings. That's T-H-R-E-E-C-U-R-L.com. I made mistakes and one was telling you that I'd be there when telling time had come. I should have said I didn't care all the time I would have saved if I had been less willing to accommodate. You'd been a little less likely to cry. Cable Smith, welcome everybody back to SCI's Home Star Outdoor Show. Thank you so much for being here today. We're about to head out to the Texas Panhandle where geese, cranes, and ducks winter by the hundreds of thousands. We're going to focus on sandhill cranes today, something that I hadn't hunted these birds in quite a bit of time, but uh, always enjoyed certainly eating them, ribeye in the sky, right? 
uh, best tasting waterfowl on the planet, in my opinion. And while I'd shot, you know, a couple handfuls of these birds over the years, I've never done like a proper crane hunt where they're lighting into the decoys. That all changed on Monday with Final Descent Guide Service and our buddy Wyatt Willis, a guide that took us out. We're going to get into that experience and then talk a little bit about what goes into making a successful crane hunt. Uh, but before we get into that, this segment brought to you by Lone Star Ag Credit. Land is the one thing they're not making any more of, but we all want it. So if you're ready to take that plunge, make that dream your reality, whether it's for recreating, running cattle, hunting, fishing, or just to get the hell out of the big city. Lone Star Ag Credit has you covered. You can find them at LoneStarAgCredit.com. Well, let's bring on our next guest here to talk Sandhill Cranes. It's our guide from this past Monday, Wyatt Willis of Final Descent. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's my pleasure. My pleasure. Uh, first of all, what an awesome day we had on Monday. I can't think of a better way to spend MLK Day uh, than by getting outdoors and smashing some ribeye of the sky. Yeah, man, it was awesome. <laughs> we had some, some good weather and lots of birds. Yeah. So we're going to talk Sandhill Cranes today. First, though, tell us a little bit about yourself as far as you know where you're from and, and how long you've been guiding hunts. Well, I'm, I'm from Texas. I'm down uh, from down south, uh, just by San Antonio. Mm -hmm. And this is probably my fifth year uh, up here in the Texas Panhandle hunting crane. Um, been guiding. This will be my fourth year of guiding them. Um, so I guess the, the first year I guided them really kind of helped out quite a bit the first year or two. And then um, now guiding on my own, obviously, over here at Final Descent. Yeah. But uh, I ended up here, you know, it's a big college town, so I did come up here for college and ended up sticking around to keep shooting birds. <laughs> so is guiding your, your full-time job then? Yes, it is. What did you major in? Yes. Uh, I majored, at, uh, I got an in, a natural resources management degree uh, with the emphasis or whatever on ranch management. So in the off-season, I do do a lot of you know, ranching and cattle and whatnot, but mainly just guiding. And you guide sand. You you start guiding, I guess. What maybe dub season? I don't know what all uh, final descent. Yeah, does, so it's it's a little bit different this year just because of you know COVID and borders being closed. It would be Canada in September, but this year it was Lubbock, Texas, with dove hunting mm -hmm. uh, September and October, and then uh, the last weekend of October, crane season opens up and. We hit the ground running all the way through last weekend of January, and then one week in February we do geese, and then after that, you know, it's kind of it kind of depends on either chasing snows with buddies or headed up north and guiding a little bit more. Or, you know, borders are going to stay closed probably, so probably not Canada. But so you follow the snow geese and, back north. That's going to be the plan, man. That's going to be the plan. Okay, right on. What um. What percentage of sandhill cranes winter in the uh, Texas Panhandle? And I think people don't realize we have uh, just hundreds of thousands of these things. And then also uh, the lesser uh, Canada geese, the, I guess a lot of people call them cacklers. That's what we've always called them. Also winter there in, in, in huge numbers. Yeah, man, I wish I could put a percentage on it and numbers on it because, you know, you got your different flyways. And I know... I think it's over half of the whole continental population. Yeah. Oh yeah, and then I mean you got the East Coast, you know, all winter down there in Florida and whatnot. But you know they call 
you know, the we call Lubbock, Texas, the Sand Hill Capital because we get you know those huge migrations come down here to our salt flats to to winter. Mm-hmm. And when you talk about sandhill cranes, you know they're an interesting looking bird. They look a lot like the size of like a blue heron, which everyone knows. You can see those just in your neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Uh, or at your local lake, I mean, or creek, anywhere. They're very common, but they're like a solitary bird. The thing, though, is that I imagine a blue heron tastes a lot like hooded merganser, like fish. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Sandhill cranes taste like steak, which that's why they're called ribeye of the sky, right? Um, yeah. So they're a lot, um, they're a lot more social as well. They they fly in these mm-hmm. huge flocks. Uh, what do they eat that makes them taste so good? One of the big factors is because geese and, and, and crane eat a lot of the same stuff, you know. Well, why do crane taste better than geese then? <laughs> uh, because crane, when they're roosting on our salt flats or when they're roosting on a pond or whatever it may be that they're roosting, their bellies aren't sitting in that water and, and soaking up, you know, whatever's in that water. Unlike geese, you know, their bellies are on the ground or in the water, you know, a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, that makes a big impact on what gets absorbed into them and, and whatnot. And makes a big, big factor in, in, in how they taste. And I mean, obviously, you know, we're hunting them in ag fields. What are their, their favorite, uh, favorite food items there when you're scouting? You're, you, what are you looking over for? Over here, in, over here, man, they, they love peanuts. I mean, it's like, it's like crack to them. Um, when it warms up a little bit, some warm days, they'd rather hit, you know, a wheat field or, or whatever, but their their favorite, I think, is for sure peanuts. <laughs> and will they hit corn as well? Yeah, they'll hit corn fields and milo fields right now. Uh, down south uh, of Lubbock area, there's more milo this year. I mean, there's a lot of, of milo around, and a little northeast of, of theirs, just got quite a bit of corn up there. And, mm-hmm. But yeah, they'll hit milo, corn, wheat, peanuts, and that's their main their main source. Okay. Uh, now, I, I've hunted a fair amount in that part of the world as far as the Panhandle, Lubbock area, uh, ducks, certainly geese and cranes, pheasant um, as well. But when it came to the the cranes and geese specifically, um, it was usually just me and a buddy or two with maybe two dozen full bodies, if we were lucky, just trying to get them within like 50 to 60 yards so we could pass shoot them, essentially. So this is my first time, you know, doing a, a proper crane hunt over decoys where they're coming in you know landing in your face essentially it was uh it was incredible it's uh it's definitely a sight to see man i I love when they drop their feet and just float coming in (laughs) yeah no it was it was absolutely it was so much fun you know there was hooting and hollering coming out of the blind and the way you run a hunt it was contagious because you're as amped up as you know the hunters um well, one time we got like six or seven, and you're like, "Rain out, fellas!" <laughs> you know, it's well, contagious. I think we dropped like eight out of that group. <laughs> eight, yeah. Oh, it was incredible, man. It was awesome. You know, a lot of people, a lot of people will say, "You know, act like you've been there," or you know, you got guys hooting and hollering. And it's like, man, if you're not out there having fun, why are you out there? Like, come on, man. Like that, that's awesome. You get 15 crane coming in and. We dropped seven, eight out of them. That, that's awesome. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I love seeing it. I get excited. I love, the, I love the way they sound when they thud, too. These are a big bird. I think uh, 
someone asked me the other day, I showed, was showing them a picture from our hunt, and they're like, how much do those things weigh? And I said, I don't know. I would guess like 10 pounds. And they're like, no. Yeah, that's what I was saying. Yeah. Well, I looked it up on, and, you know, Wikipedia has well, the answer for everything, and it said 7 to 11 pounds. So it was a, I bet you we shoot some 15-pounders. <laughs> I don't doubt it. Every now and then. And now <laughs> some of these cranes, they, they look different, and I asked you why. Uh, the ones with the really like knotted up red part of their head. Uh, those are the old birds, right? Yeah, those would be the adults. And then when they haven't have that red come in yet and they're just gray up top or got a little brown or whatever, those are the juvies. And how long can these things live? Man, they'd be upwards of 25 years old, 30 years old. And you've actually validated that before. Yes. we Last year we shot a crane that was at least 25 years old, uh, had a tracker on it and banded and all that. And, it was at least 25 years old, and that bird came from um, Russia. And Russia, and wow. Huge, yeah, Siberia, and would come down. And it would actually go to New Mexico. Uh, for the last four years, it was in New Mexico. It was his first year coming back through Texas. And, well, that was his last year. His <laughs> last stop, yeah. Well-traveled. <laughs> yeah, Real global very... traveler, yeah. Interesting. Well, now that we know a little bit about these birds, their their habits, their life cycle, their their migration all the way from northern Canada, even Russia, down to the Texas Panhandle. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, we'll figure out how to kill them effectively. That segment, by the way, brought to you by SCI, the worldwide leader in big game conservation. This organization is passionate about protecting your rights as a hunter, as well as the wildlife that we enjoy as outdoorsmen and women. And of course, they're also educating the ignorant folks out there who don't get sustainable use hunting. I'm a proud member. You should become one as well. For more info, just head over to safariclub.org. We'll keep the Sandhill Crane discussion rolling after the break on SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show. I can see the train from start to finish without a damn thing in my way. Counting every park star, trying not to lose my place. Hey guys, Cable here for QuietCat, the leader in e-bikes made specifically for overlanding, hunting, fishing, and remote access to the great outdoors. QuietCat provides outdoor enthusiasts a means of portable, low-impact transportation while providing you with the most reliable product on the market. I own a QuietCat, and it has surpassed all my expectations. It's an amazing machine that stealthily gets me wherever the hunting or fishing adventure takes me. Based out of Eagle, Colorado, QuietCat is able to put all of their products to the test, making sure your e-bike is built to last. Visit QuietCat.com or call 970-328-2399 for more info. Hey y'all, Chris Letzinger, online sales manager at Cinnamon Creek Ranch here, reminding you we're not your typical archery club. We're a one-of-a-kind archery facility with indoor and outdoor ranges, full pro shop, and six different 3D courses. Cinnamon Creek was designed by hunters for hunters. Located in Roanoke, Texas, we have over 200 3D targets to hone your archery skills. Call 817-439-8998 or visit us at cinnamoncreekranch.com to visit our new online store. That's cinnamoncreekranch.com. Hi, I'm Jim Shockey, and you're listening to Lone Star Outdoor Show. Well, down the road I go, forever onward I know, forever onward I'll go, forever. 
ever searching. Little Mike McClure bringing us back on SCI's Lone Star Outdoors show. Cable Smith here with you. Thank you so much for dropping by today. Do appreciate it. As we are talking all things Sandhill Crane, ribeye in the sky with guide Wyatt Willis of Final Descent Guide Service. Before we jump back into that conversation, however, this segment of the presentation brought to you by all season speeders and the 600-pound stand-in fill. Gone are the days of having to haul a ladder around just to fill up your feeder. That's right. It's so easy. You don't, you don't even have to back the truck up next to the feeder. You just stand there and fill it up. You can find the entire stand-and-fill feeder lineup at allseasonsfeeders.com. Well, moving right along here, let's get back into our Sandhill Crane hunting conversation with guide Wyatt Willis. Wyatt, once you've found a feed, how many birds are you looking for, as far as numbers go, to make a hunt out of it? You know, man, it really it really depends on on how comfortable those birds are in, have been in there. Um, if they've been in there for a couple of days, early season versus later season, you know, early, excuse me, sorry, earlier season, we'll shoot a lot smaller feeds, you know, 500 birds, you know, mm-hmm. 400 birds. And, you know, we could hunt feeds of 5,000 birds. Um, like that field that we, we hunted, I, I would say the night before there's probably 3000 birds in there. Oh, wow. Yeah, there's quite a bit of birds, but, you know, it kind of just depends on how comfortable they are. You know, I mean, I'll, I'll go, you know, shoot 800 birds in the field or sometimes we'll go shoot, you know, 3,000 bird feeds. You know, it really varies in our area, especially for cranes. Okay. We'll talk about the hide because these birds, I mean, all waterfowl, really, they're they're looking down on you, you know, bird's eye view, essentially. Uh, so you've got to be... Uh, well hidden, whether it's ducks or geese, but I think that's even uh, manifested more so when it comes to crane. Man, I if you don't have a good hide, then everything else that you do does not matter. You have to be hidden, and uh, I kind of think there's an art to it sometimes too. You can get really, you can be really, really hidden if you really, you know, figure it out. But uh, you know, we get to use tumbleweeds around here. We don't have any trees or. Sorry, my dog is making noises in the background. Don't worry. <laughs> uh, we don't got trees or, or anything around here, so grass and uh, and tumbleweeds, and it's about all we have out here. So, but you know, we gotta make sure clients' faces are down, and those birds, you know, when you get fifty crane up high, you know, and the sun beating down inside your blind, you don't got a shadow in there or anything. Those that's a hundred eyes, you know, looking for something to be cautious about. Uh-huh. They'll pick you out pretty quick. So you typically use like we hunted out of a like an A-frame blind. That, yeah, just a panel it's, blind. It's pretty. Yeah, we use the Lucky Duck um, A-frames or whatever they call them um, a lot. And then we do we we didn't do it, but we do hunt out of layouts a lot. Um, it kind of just depends on if we have a a berm or a pump or or something to hide on if we don't you know it makes it a little bit harder but the pivot yeah we own it right next yeah. to the pivot and then so the the uh blinds are kind of grassed in and then you start pulling out these tumbleweeds from the trailer and those just you know pile those up all over the blind and then the crazy thing which i i guess uh just makes it less work for you but we actually packed the tumbleweeds back in the trailer after we after we were done hunting 
Yeah, they're reusable, man. Yeah. <laughs> if I get, I'll get as many back in there as I can, and if I, you know, have enough for the next hunt, I don't gotta go find them in the morning. But if we don't, then we'll just go get, you know. It's it's nice to only have to go get one more load versus two more loads. Right. Save some time in the morning. Whatever whatever you gotta do to save some time in the morning. <laughs> what's the uh what's the best time of the year or, you know, best part of the season to hunt sandhill cranes? Uh, you know, that's that's a question that everybody asks. Because if it if it's and any think, better than what we experienced, dude, I can't even imagine. <laughs> <laughs> like, well, you know that, that 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 is the question that everybody asks. When should I come? When should I come? And I tell you, man, we we start shooting them October 28th, and we stop shooting them the last weekend in January. Um, I think the only difference is November. You're going to have less birds in the area, mm-hmm. and come January or early January, you're going to have more. You know, during peak migration. But um, so you know, when you go hunt with us in November. You know, you're not going to see near as many birds versus if you come down here in January, but you're still going to, you know, we're still going to be shooting birds. Yeah. Well, and they're not as wary, I suppose, Yeah. in November. Yeah, and I think another big difference is, is you know, we're shooting a lot of our birds probably at 30 yards-ish, give or take, and man, come November, man, we could be shooting them at 15 yards. And we still do shoot a lot of birds close. Um, I mean, we had a couple of pairs come, you know, right in and stuff like that but come november man in november we we get them up and close but you're probably not going to be getting groups of 30 40 crane you know you'll be getting pairs and triples packs of five stuff like that okay well you know we did this hunt um it's kind of cool how it all came together back when covid hit uh, i reached out to 10 different outfitters throughout texas because you know um do you, do you guide turkey hunts too um, I don't you personally go turkey I, hunting. Obviously, yeah, I do do turkey hunting, and some of the guys here at Final Ascent, you know, do a bunch of turkey yeah. stuff. Well, you know, a lot of outfitters, not just in Texas, but um, all over the United States, Canada. I mean, you name it, Africa. These people lost like some of them a season's worth of revenue because hunters couldn't come. Mm-hmm. Some of them have lost an entire year. You know, when we talk about Canada and the border being closed, like you like you alluded to earlier, not being able to go chase snows. Um, yeah. So we came up with this, uh, I came up with this support Texas outdoors COVID-19 initiative where 10 outfitters ponied up a, a hunt or a fishing trip. We had some fishing stuff on there too. Um, and I reached out to Jeremy at final descent, just trying to, you know, throw something different in there. Let's, what about a crane hunt? Um, so we had that, man, we had a alligator teal combo hunt, on the Texas coast, we had um, an axis doe hunt for two people with lodging, um, catfish, crappie, striper guides, donated stuff. We had all kinds of different uh, hunts in there. And Joe Kimball of Fort Worth won the drawing. Uh, my son drew drew his name out of the hat. And he wanted to do the crane hunt, which I was like, I thought for sure the person would pick the alligator hunt, you know. Um, but I was tickled because I hadn't, I hadn't been out that way in seven or eight years. And, and like I said, hadn't done a proper hunt like this. Um, so we had a pretty good group. It was Joe, myself, he brought six other guys, mix of his buddies and their, their boys, his son. And we ended up getting, uh, I think we shot like a nine man limit. Yeah, we, we, it was pretty good, man. It was a great group of guys, which the limit is three uh, birds per person per day. 
Yes. I don't think a lot of folks realize you actually have to get a Sandhill Crane permit, however. You do. It's free, but yeah. you got to get it. <laughs> so the, the day before, I was on the Texas Parks and Wildlife website making sure I ordered mine because, like I said, I hadn't hunted cranes in seven or eight years, and it's not one of those things you really think about unless you know you're going to an area where yeah. there's a bunch of cranes. Um, but it's I don't it's not a Texas Parks and Wildlife mandate. I think it's a federal deal. Yeah, it is a federal crane permit, and I think they just do that just to keep an eye or, you know, try and get a number of how many people are actually hunting Santo crane. Mm -hmm. Okay, so there's that to consider. Like I said, three bird limit. And you guys count any bird that goes down, even if it's like a thousand yards away and we can't recover it, that counts towards the limit. We, if we see a sailor and I can tell you that it went down, that's a, that's a down bird that, that we shot, so... You know, and when, you know, on our way out, you know, we saw, you know, we had them walk around out there on the edge of that field, trying to find them, make sure we're not leaving anything behind. Mm -hmm. We don't want to get, you know, any wasted game, but, you know, we do our best, and it happens, and you pepper a lot of birds and whatnot. But, well, I think you know, I, I, that's just the ethical way to do it. Uh, you saw, you see it go down, even if it's a half mile away. Um, you know, you got to count it. Um, so now, a lot of the time, you will hunt with a dog, correct? Yes. We did not hunt with a dog on, on our hunt, uh, but I'm assuming you have a lab. Yeah, I have a lab. Uh, I got a male coda, and that that was just that was just his day off. <laughs> right. Well, I'm sure you know three and a half months of of every day. You know. Yeah. Um, retrieving anywhere from, I don't I don't know how many, few, I don't know how few hunters you'll take out, but I imagine most of the groups are you know six, eight, ten guys even. Mm-hmm. We try and stick with six-man groups. Okay. You know, six-man groups gives gives the groups a private group, and they have four or whatever. You might get like two or three thrown in there. So we try and run at about six guys if we can. And then that that saves us on feeds too, because if we're run, hunting a 2,000 bird feed or whatever, we don't want to go in there just for four people to shoot 12 birds. You know, we'd rather go in there yeah. with eight guns instead of four guns. Right. Back to the dogs though, and I've seen the pictures of these these. Um, I think they're called doggles, which sounds ridiculous, right? <laughs> yeah, but just goggles for dogs. It's eye protection for a retriever because these cranes, uh, you know, when you get a sailor that's a cripple and he stands up, puts his wings out, and you know, the first thing he's going to try to do is peck that dog in the face. Yeah, they they are definitely um, aggressive birds, more aggressive than you know, geese or ducks or whatever, and they actually have something that can hurt your dog. Them beaks will, will hurt your dog. They got them claws on their on their feet that are real sharp. And, you know, so it just takes one peck to the eyes, and that's a very expensive vet bill and a blind dog. Yeah. Well, and I've never seen so, it personally, but I've heard stories of, of folks' dogs being blinded by a crane. Um, so, so your dog does wear the, the doggles. As much as possible. He's not quite a fan of them, but uh, <laughs> I do. If it gets pretty hot and heavy where we're rocking and rolling, man, I, he's got them on. About how many decoys would you say is necessary for for a legit hunt? Um, not not the, here, let's throw out a few and try to pass shoot them like I've done in the past. Probably a couple dozen, man. Um, we run anywhere from one dozen to five dozen. And these are full bodies? Um, that's when we're running the silhouettes. 
uh, like when we hunted, we ran eight dozen silhouettes and maybe like a dozen or two dozen full bodies. Um, so I do intermix them sometimes. Um, and I, the only thing that gives me a preference on running full bodies or silhouettes is pretty much windy days. If it's going to be too windy or not windy at all or whatever. Um, but early season, there's times where I throw a dozen full bodies out there, two dozen silhouettes out there or whatever. And that's plenty. Okay. And the full bodies are quite expensive. Yeah. They're not cheap. That's for sure. Like what? A hundred dollars a decoy. Yeah. There's two decoy companies out there right now that make them. One is SX and the other is deception decoys. And they both run about the same price, which is about a hundred dollars a decoy. So for, for just a casual guy who's say he has permission to hunt a feed, he doesn't really know what he's doing. He's listening to this. Uh, what about the, um, the silhouettes? Can he get uh, enough to make a hunt out of it affordably? Oh, no doubt. And Oh, yeah, no doubt. Dive Bomb has them for a great price. I wish I could give you the exact price off the top of my head, uh, but I mean, there's hunts where we run straight dive bombs, so maybe just a couple dozen of them, and they work perfect. And so they sell them by the dozen or something, probably? Yeah, I think they sell, yeah, I think they sell them by a dozen, or you can get them at a little discounted price if you buy five dozen or something like that, but they're way more affordable than full bodies. Okay, okay. And then for your shot selection, you told you told us a funny story in the blind. You had some guys that were hitting the cranes, but the cranes were just kind of laughing and flying off. And then you asked them what they were what kind of shot they were shooting. What did they say? And they were shooting uh, like modified chokes with five shot or, or something like that. And I was like, man, no wonder. I was like, <laughs> so I, I mean, a lot of guys shoot BBs at them and it's, yeah, they work. I think it makes, you know, I think it might be a little overkill, um, but I shoot two shot full chokes, uh, three shot full chokes, one shot. I mean, that's all you need for them, but Definitely want to go bigger rather than smaller. Well, see, I pulled these uh, old boxes of shells out of the garage, and going back to the amount of time between the, you know, the last time I was out there chasing sandhills, we're trying to shoot yeah. them at fifty, sixty yards. So of course I was shooting BBs, you know. Yeah. Uh, it, it, but getting them in twenty, thirty yards, uh, yeah, I'm sure you can get away with uh, two or three shots. Oh yeah, it, and I just I prefer full chokes on them, but. You know, then it's to each their own, though. You know, some people are a lot better shot with, you know, three shot improved or, you know, whatever. Yeah. I would definitely go with a bigger shot rather than a smaller one on them. (laughs) What what is your favorite way to prepare them as far as your favorite recipe? My favorite way is fajitas. And just like you're cooking, you know, beef fajitas or whatever, you, they got that membrane on them, just like backstrap does. So you take that back that membrane off of them, butterfly them, you know, uh, marinate them a little bit with whatever fajita marinade you like. Put some seasoning on them, throw them on the grill, and throw them in your taco with some cheese and mm. whatever else you like on your fajitas. Tasty. Yeah, so my mom, God bless her, she isn't a hunter, has never hunted, and really – is disgusted by the idea of eating wild game. <laughs> yeah. And I made uh, some kebabs years ago and, you know, vegetables and I cubed up the, the yeah. steak, uh, the, the crane steaks to nice chunks and, you know, cooked them to medium rare. 
and then served them to my entire family and told them all that it was just beef, you know. And once they were done eating, I showed them a picture of a sandal crane and told them that's what they ate. And my mom had just finished telling me how how great dinner was, son. I love you so much. Thanks for inviting oh, me yeah. over. And I was like, here, mom, look at what you just ate. And she was just mortified. And I was like, no, you don't have the right to, to say that because you just told me how good it was. So it's not an exaggeration. As long as you, as long as you don't overcook them, man, yeah. you're good. Once, you know, just like any other thing, though, you can cook them medium rare. And they, heck, you can throw them on the grill cook a medium rare with some steak seasoning on them and boom they're ready to roll yeah well it's just like with any waterfowl if it's past medium rare yeah uh, it's that's bad news unless you're slow cooking them uh, for six yeah, or eight they're, hours they're they're definitely a lot more tender than most waterfowl that's for sure absolutely and i recommend um that people save the legs too and and even on geese i mean there's enough there you save uh from, from a hunt like we had if you save the legs you've got mm-hmm. plenty for uh for a nice meal um, you know, carne asada, barbacoa, however you want to do it in a crock pot. I mean, that they're phenomenal. Yep. So, um, well, hey, last question: How much does it uh, cost for you know if someone wants to book a hunt for next year? Typically, what are they looking at for a for a one day hunt? So, for to come hunt with final scent for a crane hunt, it's two hundred seventy five dollars a gun uh, okay. for the day. Um, of course, you got to get your hunting license and all that, but your crane permit, you just got to get it online or over the phone and that's free. Right. Okay. So, so two seventy five in the hunt, typically, I mean, it starts before dark and these things don't, they're not getting up as early as ducks. You know, you're not going to have them lighting yeah. decoys before legal shooting time. Yeah. So we typically get out there by six o'clock or so and set up and we like to get there a little bit earlier, you know, don't want to be late, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and then we, set up and then birds start flying about 7:30, and they'll fly till about 11 um and then they'll go back and they'll go loaf on water or, or whatever just like geese will um so typically our hunts are wrapped up by 11 o'clock okay and the website final descent guide services okay and then you've got man you've got like 25,000 followers on instagram uh you kind of uh <laughs> I, I do you get or uh, I'm not going to say an amateur photographer. Your your photos are very good. Uh, I think that's Thank probably you. why appreciate folks it. are following along. Yeah, I do. I like to do a lot of photography. It's hard uh, during regular season right now, you know, get behind the camera just because, you know, so focused on clients and safety and dogs and, and all that. But whenever I get the chance to, I love to get behind it. Oh, yeah. And that, that begs the last question. I forgot to ask this earlier. Uh, as far as calling goes, do these birds respond yeah. to calls? And and you were calling quite a bit, uh, so there's the answer there. W- are these crane calls specifically, or were you like manipulating a, a goose call? Um, I do have a crane call uh, that I do use uh, Pacific calls, uh-huh. and then I do use my goose call as well that I'll manipulate uh, into um, a crane call. Um, I think they do respond to calling, just not as well as geese or ducks do. Uh, it's not typical like geese and ducks. You can you can change their mind and turn their direction. Crane, I think, is just a confidence builder. Okay. Well, they are very vocal. I mean, if you've ever heard cranes, they're yeah, they're, they're not. They're you can loud. hear them from a mile up in the in the stratosphere. Mm-hmm. So, well, cool yeah. stuff, Wyatt. I uh, I certainly appreciate it, man. The hunt uh, exceeded my expectations, and I cannot wait to come back next year. And I'm glad y'all can make it out, and I hope you do come back next year. Guarantee it, man. Hey, thanks again. All right, thank you.
Well, there he goes, Wyatt Willis of Final Descent Guide Service. Funny little anecdote. Um, if you want to see this, go to my Instagram page. There's a video. So, so Wyatt sets his GoPro up in the decoys, and I think he like remotely controls it, and turns it on. So, I believe it was the group where we had the rain out and got like eight birds. One of them sailed a couple hundred yards and was standing up in the peanut field. And Wyatt sprints out there because, like I said, it was the dog's day off. The thing jumps up and like tries to ninja kick or crane kick, right? Uh, Wyatt. Wyatt somehow ducks out of the way. Then it's all hell breaks loose. It's hand-to-hand or hand-to-beak combat. And finally, Wyatt just grabs the upright crane by the neck and starts wringing its neck, throws it aside, and sprints off to grab the next one. It was incredible. Uh, But that is on my Instagram and Facebook pages. That segment of the show, by the way, brought to you by Big & J Whitetail Attractants and Pulsar Night Vision and Thermal Imaging Optics. Uh, Unfortunately, we are out of time for today. Thanks to Wyatt as well as our other guest, Stephen Ranella. Thanks to all of our sponsors for making this show possible. Thanks to you, the listener, for being a part of SCI's Lone Star Outdoors show. Until then, I'm Cable Smith saying, y'all have a great week in the outdoors. King of the road, I know every engineer on every train, all of their children and all of their names.